Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Ben Allen in for Scott Lamar. This week, federal centers, the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new guidelines on prescribing opioids like OxyContin and Percocet. That comes after Pennsylvania put out its own set of recommendations. Will it make a difference in slowing the opioid crisis that has killed thousands of Pennsylvanians? We'll break it down with Dr. Chris Echterling, a medical director with Wellspan, and Dr. Robert Rodak, president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians. Plus, Sunbury's police force is a mess right now. What is going on in the city in Northumberland County? Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty will join us later to discuss the issue. But first, we're joined by Mark Levy of the Associated Press to talk about the week that was at the Capitol. Hi, Mark. Hi, how are you? I am good. So let's first just lay out this week, another week, um, more discussion about the budget. At what point are we ever going to see a resolution of this budget mess? That's uh, the million-dollar question. Uh, it was a, a brisk week this week in, in the Capitol uh, with regard to the budget. The uh, Republican-controlled legislature sent uh, another spending bill. I think it's about the fourth spending uh, bill that they have sent to the governor in the last nine months. It's designed to complete uh, the, uh, the fiscal year budget. The governor says he's going to veto it. Um, and I think what everyone's watching now for is uh, the continuing impact on schools that um, say they're running out of money. There's a number of districts around the state, particularly the ones that are most reliant on state aid, hence the poorest districts that are worried that they will be unable to make payroll uh, at some point in April or May. Yeah, let's talk about that because this is no longer a theoretical discussion. It hasn't really been a theoretical discussion for a while because of the impact on social service agencies and other different uh, nonprofit groups. But schools are really what gets people's attention because that is education that we're talking about. These are kids in the future of Pennsylvania. Reading School District says interest costs are $1,000 a day. Red Lion School District in York County says that um, if they don't have a budget, they could declare bankruptcy by the end of the fiscal year. What's the real impact? Well, um, the impact here is a district that runs out of money and cannot borrow. They literally cannot get a loan from the bank because their credit is so bad and there is no confidence in the state government to back up a loan, to guarantee that loan, that a district can't get money. Um, you know, we're also starting to wonder uh, a lot. So people, there are districts out there that are that fit that bill. I spoke to the uh, acting superintendent uh, uh, yesterday of Aliquippa, which yep. is a district outside of Pittsburgh. It's a small district, but it's a relatively poor district and relatively reliant on state aid. Um, the acting superintendent there believes that uh, when May 1st hits, the district will not have money anymore. They already have rolled up two bill, uh, sorry, two million dollars in unpaid bills to the bus company, to the insurance company. Um, they can make three more payrolls, and that's it. And he believes they will be unable to borrow, and that the state will be unable to help them borrow to stay open. Basically, these banks are saying, "Hey, we're not going to lend you money because you have bad credit, and we don't trust that the state will send you money or will get you the money that we lent you." Is that basically what's going on here? Exactly. Um, historically, uh, the poorest school districts have been able to borrow. Uh, when they needed to borrow because the state was there to back it up and say, we will, we will intercept money from state aid to that district to pay your loan off, to pay the installment payments. 
Um, but banks are losing confidence in the state government's uh, either ability or willingness to be there and to back up that loan if, if, the, if this district cannot make the payment. Let's take just a step back just for a second. People might listen to this and say, wait, I thought the state budget was resolved. I thought Governor Wolf did sign a budget in late December. Why are these issues still coming up? What, what the governor did is he signed about $23 billion dollars um, that that was able to go out, but he vetoed another six some odd billion dollars from the Republican spending plan that went to him in late December. He opposed that plan and his reasons for vetoing it. Um, you can um, there's probably a handful of them, but by and large, he's saying we can't afford this. We have a huge deficit, and um, this this budget needs to be balanced. Um, he also wants a lot more money for schools than the Republican legislature has been willing to find for him or to send him. Um, so what we have now is a situation where schools got about six months of money. They were able to repay loans that they were taking out in uh, late uh, 2015. Um, some of them started to, to threaten not to open up after the winter break. So that money went out. It's about half of what uh, essentially they were counting on. And the other half is still in limbo. It's still the subject of a, of, of a partisan budget fight in Harrisburg and schools. Uh, as I said, there's a number of them around the state that are relatively reliant on state aid that are starting to warn that they're going to run out of money in the coming weeks. Uh, the question is, is how many of them can borrow to stay open and how many of them cannot and are at the very last resort. So let's talk a little bit about the political maneuvering, because Republicans did pass uh, a spending plan this week. This was the House GOP passed mm -hmm. a spending plan, $6 billion. But mm -hmm. Governor Wolf has threatened to veto that plan. What could kind of be coming down the pike here? Um, well, uh, I've talked to several Democrats who um, believe that there is an outside chance um, that the legislature could override the governor's veto. Um, we saw some Democrats vote along with Republicans to send this bill to the governor. We're in an election year uh, when everyone uh, you know, the legislature is, is more sensitive to uh, the real world effects of this. Um, but... Um, you know, I think once the governor, if assuming he does follow through on his threat to veto it, the two things um, that everyone will be watching for is if and when the uh, the legislature tries to act to override the veto, and if and when a school district um, does move to close its doors because they're at the uh, last resort. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. We're talking with Mark Levy of the Associated Press about the week at the Capitol. Mark, another big story moving on from the budget. Another big story at the Capitol. This uh, House approving the medical marijuana legalization uh, in, in limited uses, but legalization nonetheless for medical marijuana in Pennsylvania. How did that get done in the House? You know, it's the, the advocates for it have felt for a very long time that they had the votes in the House. There was opposition at the highest levels of Republican leadership, and that has frustrated the effort to bring this to the floor. But um, as we saw in the vote, I believe it was, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but it was about 148 to 43, something along yeah, those lines. Yeah, it was overwhelming. It was, it was a really strong vote. Um, there was strong bipartisan support for it. Um, there were some members of Republican leadership who were for it. Um, and um, it's, it's a very passionate issue. Uh, there are a, uh, a number of parents who have been going door to door in the legislature for several years now 
um, parents of children who are racked by horrible seizures every day. Um, we're talking about parents who worry that you know their child will not survive these seizures. They are the ones who lobbied hard for this. Um, and uh, but the the the, uh, the lawmakers who have who have shepherded through the legislature also believe that medical marijuana can be there to treat a lot of other conditions, whether it's PTSD, whether it's autism, whether it's cancer patients. Expect the Senate to move that along and the governor to sign it. The the Senate passed um, in overwhelming numbers a bill last May, um, and I the, the the folks who shepherded that through. Uh, want to take a good hard look at what the House did, but I think um, you know they are strongly motivated to pass this, send it to the governor, get it into law. The House did a lot of work on this, um, and um, I, I think they worry about any further delays to uh, to nitpick over details in the bill. Now let's talk about uh, the final issue here. This is uh, the Supreme Court justice that is. Uh, resigned or has resigned, Michael Aiken, what kind of impact will this have on the judiciary in the next couple of months? So what we have now, he was suspended, um, I believe it was uh, going back to late last year. Um, So what we have now is a Supreme Court with five Democrats and one Republican and one empty seat. So it's up to the governor now to nominate somebody uh, to replace Aiken. And uh, the Senate has the uh, the ability to to confirm that nomination. They'll need a two thirds vote. The likelihood is that the governor will find another Republican to replace Aiken, who was a Republican, um, and he'll probably look to Senate leadership for some recommendations. He also has a uh, task force to come up with some names. I mean, call me crazy here, Mark, but could this be an olive branch to solve the budget crisis? There's always horse trading going on. Hey, Governor Wolf says, hey, Republicans, I will give you this justice uh, because to, to replace uh, Justice Aiken. Could you give me something in the budget? Um, it's hard to envision that. It's, okay. po- it's okay. possible, but I think, I think the questions in the budget uh, regarding tax increases that the governor wants regarding education money for public schools um, and the distribution of that, I think, are much larger questions than... Um, you know, the nomination of a Supreme Court justice for a year and a half will be able to really solve. Okay, gotcha. Um, anything else, anything you wanted to touch on that, that happened at the Capitol that people should really know about? Um, it, look, it was, it, was, it was a busy week. Uh, the governor uh, has a slate of some good government anti-corruption measures that he's uh, putting his, his, uh, his support behind. Um, the U.S. Senate race is really getting hot. We're seeing the candidates um, starting to air TV ads. Uh, the uh, senior senator, uh, Bob Casey, uh, is endorsing Katie McGinty this morning in right. the four-way Democratic Party primary. Um, and uh, on April 26th, we'll see uh, we'll see who was nominated to challenge Pat Toomey. We also saw some action in court over uh, ballot challenges this week. Marco Rubio, his his folks dropped their challenge to John Kasich, the Ohio governor and Republican presidential candidate. That that will allow him to stay on the ballot in Pennsylvania because there was some question over whether the court would knock him off. Well, that's Mark Levy of the Associated Press. Mark, thanks a lot for breaking down the week at the Capitol. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. The opioid crisis has killed thousands of Pennsylvanians, and about 80% of people who end up addicted to heroin start with prescription painkillers like OxyContin and Percocet. This week, the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released new guidelines on prescribing opioids. That comes after Pennsylvania put out its own set of recommendations. 
So what does it all mean? Here to break it down, Dr. Chris Echterling, a medical director with Wellspan, and Dr. Robert Rodak, president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians. Hello both to both of you. Good morning. Good morning, man. All right. So we welcome your questions and comments. Call us at 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You can also leave a question or comment on WITF.org or on WITF's Facebook page. These guidelines are pretty detailed. They say opioids like OxyContin and Percocet really should be a last resort for primary care providers. They should be prescribed at the lowest doses first. They even talk about a urine test for people going on opioids. So let me start with you, Dr. Echterling. How do you assess what's been put forward? Um, I think these comments, uh, Ben, are consistent with what we're hearing from a lot of our expert panels recently responding to the opiate crisis across the country and certainly in the Commonwealth. Um, what we're starting to do in WellSpan is to look at opiate prescribing, like uh, prescribing uh, anticoagulants for uh, blood thinners for blood clots, that we can't use them long-term without certain monitoring of them. And, and certainly, like we check blood tests to see how thin someone's blood is on Coumadin, we believe now uh, across our system that we need to check things like urine drug screens on a regular basis to make sure the medications are safe for the patient, their family, and the community. And Dr. Rodak, what's your take on these? Uh, I think that the guidelines are a good first step. I think more needs to be investigated. I, uh, the American Academy of Family Physicians had looked at these guidelines and we were hopeful that they would be more um, evidence-based. And so we're, as a, as a community, trying to work um, and see if we can't improve the guidelines. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because the American Academy of Family Physicians did voice some opposition to these guidelines, again, talking about the evidence here. Could you describe a little bit about that opposition and really what the options are? Because, you know, to me, looking at these, it's really you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, as much as I don't like that that metaphor. There are people that have very legitimate pain needs and very legitimate uh, opiate needs, but then there are others who maybe don't necessarily need to go on opiates, but want to go on opiates because it's a better option than, you know, taking an hour, uh, you know, a week at a pain management clinic or some type of, you know, acupuncture session or something like that. Well, for example, the guidelines talk about using uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines and Tylenol and although we all do that already, there really doesn't have the evidence um, because a lot, some patients, that's not an alternative for them. Um, somebody with chronic kidney disease, um, having problems with, um, um, with their uh, kidney function, and, and then you put them on an anti-inflammatory, it could really cause them more, more difficulties and benefits. So... I think that they have to be patient-guided um, and um, have uh, evidence that it has the, the outcomes that we'd like it to have. What's the and I would agree with Dr. Yeah, yeah, go oh, ahead, Doctor. I would agree with Dr. I would agree with Dr. Rodak. I mean, I, we and actually, I think in the CDC report they admit themselves that there is not the evidence that they would normally 
desire to 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 institute guidelines, but because of the crisis, they they felt they had to publish something. And I think it also speaks to the that we there's been an assumption in the medical community and the community in general that there's more evidence-based approach to opiates than there really is to particularly for long-term pain. And so. It's critical that we understand more about people's options in the future to balance the risk and benefits of treatment for their pain. Yeah, but I was going to ask you about that because, you know, guidelines are one thing and they're put out and there's Pennsylvania guidelines that everyone worked on uh, in Pennsylvania. And then there's the CDC guidelines that were worked on nationwide. But what kind of real impact do they have for patients? You know, if I walk into uh, my primary care provider's office and say that I need to go on opioids, how will things be different now than they might have been two or three years ago? Well, I think there's going to be a big learning curve with um, uh, teaching and and educating physicians about the guidelines and having um, them get a better sense of what's needed for our patients and then using that to help uh, arrive at patient care. Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, I mean, guidelines are meant to be, you know, just that guidelines. And so I agree with the professional societies that are concerned that they'll be legislated into law or anything like that. And there is the concern that uh, we, things could swing too far and people with legitimate pain needs could find themselves excluded from pain management. I think it should be a prompt for patients like family physicians. We always want to have a collaborative relationship with our patients and discuss risk and benefits and come to um, you know, an answer about their course of treatment. I think this, these guidelines are just an opportunity the next time people are on opiates to have that conversation with their doctor and just to sort of say, is there anything else I could be doing to treat uh, my pain? Is it reasonable to try to decrease my opiates? To have those conversations, uh, because that's what we always desire as physicians anyway, to have those collaborative conversations with our patients. So what other options are there? If, if someone may not be necessarily a good candidate for uh, opiates. What other options are there out there? I know the CDC makes a number of recommendations, but you guys are on the front lines. What other options are there out there to treat long-term non-cancer pain? I certainly like um, using physical therapy and exercise programs and things that um, that fit the patient's need um, that may improve uh, how they function within their day and um, not not have to utilize um, narcotics in patients that could have other alternatives. Yeah, and I would agree with that, uh, Ben. I think I think that's important. Certainly, they talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a type of um, counseling uh, that actually is not related to a mental health diagnosis whatsoever. I mean, the tr- the, the the struggle is that both physical therapy and and, and behavioral therapy are expensive and people have co-pays. But people can do things like learn mindfulness even by just some free sites on the, on the uh, Internet and just being more physically active, even though it seems contra-intuitive uh, that if I'm in pain, I would be more active. We know that being more active, being as active as possible, actually in many people decreases their pain. And then just knowing that we shouldn't focus so much on pain as function because sort of pain is a part of living for many of us. And so what we really care about is are we functioning? Are we taking care of our families? Are we, going, are we doing the things we enjoy? Are we going to work? And, and because for many people, we may not be able to relieve completely their pain uh, without causing actually more problems in their life overall. You talked about learned mindfulness, uh, Dr. Ling. 
How do you talk about that with a patient, though? I'm imagining a patient. I walk in and I say, you know, I want these opiates. And you say, learned mindfulness. And I say, you know, could I just have a pill that I can take in 10 seconds every day? Do I really need to devote 30 or 40 or an hour um, to uh, to really figuring this out every single day? I think I, I wonder about that kind of, frankly, logistical question that might come up in a patient's mind. There's no question about that. I mean, uh, medications at first seem easier because we all live busy lives. And uh, But really, that's why we want people to have conversations with their doctors to hear, you know, what are the, the risk of me continuing this medication long term? And um, certainly opiates have more negative effects than we thought at first in terms of function, in terms of relationships, in terms of risk to our families and our community. So it is a conversation that needs to uh, think more than just today, both for our community and certainly for individuals. Uh, but because the, the idea that opiates are an immediate relief to pain is part of why we're in the situation we are right now in our country. Dr. Rodak, I did want to ask you, with this crisis that's going on, I know you're in Erie and uh, the crisis has a little bit of a different look in that part of the state, but in South Central Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, in uh, Philadelphia, uh, very much a heroin crisis with this heroin and opiate crisis going on. Do you find that patients are more concerned about getting prescribed opiates? Are you getting more questions about getting prescribed opiates? Well, I guess in Erie, we also have the same issue with heroin that um, patients will drift to that because it's a cheap alternative to um, to their opioids. And uh, they may start in a doctor's office on some opioids and, and then not be able to get them anymore at the rate that they would like and then end up uh, um, buying them off the street until they find that that's too expensive. And then they move to this heroin um, and as we've seen in other large cities, um, heroin has um, unfortunately had some deaths that are associated with it. Um, so I think the crisis is pretty global. It's not um, just a local to um, the larger cities. You're listening ben, to some, oh, some, Go ahead. Go I, ahead. I think there's some things people can do right now that, you know, again, have the conversation with their doctors. Can I try a lower dose or their alternatives? And also make sure they secure their opiates uh, because we see a lot of accidental overdoses. So making sure their opiates are locked up. If they have leftovers, take it to their police station or wherever and get it disposed of or, if necessary, flush it down the toilet. And, and ask their provider if they should have, if they're on higher doses of opiates, ask their doctor if they should have naloxone, which is Narcan at home, just in case there's an accidental overdose. Those are sort of immediate, I think, non-controversial things people can do to protect themselves and their family right now. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. We're talking with Dr. Chris Echterling, a medical director with Wellspan, and Dr. Robert Rodak, president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians. If you have questions or comments about the opiate crisis and these new CDC prescribing guidelines, we welcome those. 1-800-729-7532. 1-800-729-7532. Going big picture here, and this is a question for both of you, what role you know, do doctors and primary care providers play here? And I ask this question because there's a new Harvard poll out that shows that one in three Americans actually blame doctors partially for the opiate crisis. 
I think that often we start with an acute pain problem that patients will receive um, or may have a fracture or post-operative kind of problem and then be given um, acutely some some medication and then they find that this works for them and so they're easy to go back to that and so I think physicians have to keep in mind that this isn't always the best answer to a chronic pain problem. And, I, and Ben, I would agree. I mean, I think in medicine we're constantly learning and how to care for our patients better. And a lot of use of opiates occurred maybe 20 years ago or so when we were responding to the issue that we weren't treating people in the end of their life with adequate pain control. And we across the country, not just doctors, but regulating organizations, generalize that to asking everyone about their pain. Uh, pain is the fifth vital sign. And then making assumptions maybe about opiates uh, and how they can relieve end-of-life pain to broader uh, things in terms of how they might not be as much of a risk for long-term non-chronic pain. And so we're learning that there's, that's not appropriate and we're trying to adjust. But that's why a conversation between the patient and their, their provider is so critical to set up a treatment plan that takes into consideration the most recent evidence about risk and benefits of treatment. I want to go to a caller. We've got Steve from Conestoga on the line. Steve, we are on Smart Talk. Steve, you there. And the fact that the medical profession and, furthermore, the insurance industry is limiting our options to pain management and uh, that this opiate uh, solution is about the only one that's available to us and that there are other uh, methods of pain relief, uh, mainly holistic methods, uh, linseed oil, massages on sore muscles, that can do a lot of help, and uh, also medical marijuana. I mean, I know a lot of people that have uh, relieved chronic pain with medical marijuana and that the uh, medical profession and the insurance industry has kept this all shut down for so long. And do you see any relief in the future for that? So, doctors, let me put that to you because, you know, the medical profession is an evidence-based profession. What's the challenge here in a patient coming to you, asking you about one of those options, and maybe they're may be some anecdotal evidence, but not necessarily the rigorous evidence that uh, a doctor might look for. Well, that's some of what we are finding, that we will need to develop standards of care for using medical marijuana. And that, that information is not yet available. It hasn't been well uh, defined, and there will be a lot of investigation. But because marijuana has been listed as a class one drug, research has not been able to be done for that, and it has hamstrung some of the um, the attempts to get further data. Well, I would agree not only with evidence. I mean, we need more information. We need it quickly about alternative treatments, but we also need, like the caller said, insurance companies to step up to the plate and allow us to get patients access, financial access to other treatment modalities, uh, because that's critical. As you probably know on this program, we're going to be turning on a prescription drug database probably the fall of 2016 in, the, in Pennsylvania. It'll be a great tool. 
but we, uh, it'll identify people that are having trouble with substance use and maybe got into it for uh, pain use but are now having problems with it. And so the other place we need better access and payment for is substance use disorder treatments because we're going to be identifying people in the fall that uh, their, their opiate use has gotten out of control. And likewise, the access to substance use treatment and the payment for that isn't what it needs to be to help those people either. I want to go to Jesse from Elizabethtown. Jesse, you're on Smart Talk. Hey, how are you? Good. Listen, uh, I just heard one of your guests recommend to your audience that if they have opioids in their house that they're no longer using to flush them down the toilet. This is terrible advice. There are communities all over our country which, during their water testing, are finding that there are illicit drugs, there are over-the-counter pharmaceutical traces, there are prescription drug traces in the drinking water because people are flushing things down the toilet. We live in a cyclic environment with our consumables. Do not flush drugs down the toilet. That is terrible advice. Take them to the police station. Just... Get rid of them in some other fashion that's not disposal. You cannot flush drugs down the toilet. Terrible advice. Jesse, thanks for the call. And certainly there are, there are drug take-back programs across Pennsylvania. Police stations often house those, those uh, drug take-back programs and allow people to take uh, their drugs in for free. Uh, Jesse, yeah, thanks I, for the call. I, yeah. I'd agree with the caller that it is not a good idea to flush them down the toilet. I think that that is uh, um, something that we advise our patients not to do. But as you said, taking to drug back, um, take back programs or some pharmacies will also take those back and destroy them um, as a way of uh, handling those um, medications. And it just isn't only narcotics, but it's medications in general. Well, and Ben, this is Chris Ectring, so I was the one that said that, so I clearly did say to take it to police stations first, and certainly yeah. the second alternative would be to put it in coffee grounds or kitty litter in the middle of, of trash that then gets incinerated in many of our communities. But I would argue that at last resort, a small amount of opiates, uh, and, and the DEA supports this, it's not preferable, but having leftover medications around the house is the least preferable uh, uh, problem. So. Mike from Lewisburg is on the phone. Mike, welcome to Smart Talk. Uh, thank you for taking my call, and I'd like to. That's why I, I called when I heard that comment, flushing it down the toilet. As an environmental consultant, that's old school, and and the docs have to be a little bit a uh, little bit more in tune in today's uh, thinking. So good for the caller before, but as long as I am, I'm on the line too, I like to just say that I think the doctors have been very late coming to this issue. And they're still late. For example, I had a wisdom tooth pulled out a month ago. Normal, nothing out of the ordinary. I walked out with a prescription for opiates, and I never used it. Actually, I have it here as a reminder to call and, and, and to talk about this issue. Why don't the doctors say, call me if you have pain, rather than just giving out scripts for these opiates so freely? Thank you. Yes, so this is Chris Ectrilling. So in our group, uh, the Wellspan Medical Group, we're working on uh, working with our specialty colleagues, too, to sit down and to decide uh, when they're going to give opiates as first or second line, how much they're going to give, when they're going to give, and when they're going to stop. And, and we're, that's a work in progress. Again, I mentioned that we're trying to learn how to do things better. I, I would also uh, say that it's until, uh, until we get there, the patients should always sort of say, do I need this? Is there, I, I've heard these are, are 
potentially dangerous drugs, is there anything else I could use besides this? Again, to have that collaborative relationship with their doctor to understand the risk and benefits of what's being recommended. I was going to ask a little bit about the balance here, because there are some patients that I'm sure are like Mike from Lewisburg, and they're saying, you know, why do I need these prescriptions? But then there are other patients who say, it may be hard for me to get to a pharmacy, and I don't want to have to follow up, and maybe the dentist or the doctor doesn't trust that that patient will do the follow-up. What can health systems do in that kind of situation where you kind of have to walk that fine line? I think that prescriptions, um, narcotics like this, they they require a, a handwritten prescription, and sometimes it then for the patient convenience, that part of the conversation has to go on that I know that you may have some post-operative pain, but you may not need um, a, a narcotic, but you might need uh, ibuprofen. And if you want to try that first and then um, hold on to this prescription, and if you never need it, tear it up and, and not use it. So I think that's, again, part of the conversation that uh, Dr. Eckerling, um commented on that we that we have that conversation that we just don't discharge a patient with a script and never have talked about it. Just wanted to uh, mention that there is legislation that has been proposed in the Pennsylvania uh, Senate, I believe, that would limit prescriptions to seven days for opiates when you're leaving an emergency room. Wouldn't address uh, other issues, but there is some legislation uh, pending on that, and Massachusetts recently took action on that and uh, have come to an agreement on a seven-day limit for opioids. I'm afraid we're going to have to leave the conversation there. So much to talk about, unfortunately, but we do have to move on. Dr. Chris Echterling, a medical director with Wellspan, thanks for joining us on Smart Talk. Thank you, Ben. And Dr. Robert Rodak, he's president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians. Doctor, thanks for taking some time. Thanks, Ben. And you're listening You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Ben Allen. Sunbury's police department is facing controversy. A report released this week calls a recent internal investigation biased, unprofessional, and fatally flawed. Keystone Crossroads reporter Emily Previty analyzed the report and is here. Hi, Emily. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Walk me through the process of how we got to this point where there was an internal investigation and then an investigation of that investigation. Sure. So this really goes back years, actually, um, to when the officer who ended up being under investigation um, met a woman who he had a relationship with, and she was... The one who, after that ended, came forward um, and notified the you know city officials um, that this well her husband notified the city officials that the officer had been engaging um, in this relationship while he was on duty and utilizing um, city resources. So basically, one let's just break that down. Actually, let me just stop sure. you for a sec. So he is using his police car, using his police cruiser to go visit this woman, engaging in maybe sexual relations while he's on duty? Well, that's um, that's what she says, and he, he still denies that. However, he does acknowledge um, that he communicated with her using his department-issued phone and that he did um, meet up with her while he was on duty as well as during breaks and off-duty. Okay, okay. So 
the investigation of of that issue took place and um, city council wasn't satisfied with the results of that. When they read the report, they felt that it wasn't um, thorough enough. And so they wanted to know why that was, uh, why some seemingly basic steps were missed. And they voted on hiring um, attorneys from an outside law firm to come in and do, uh, you know, an independent review of this internal affairs investigation. And they ended up paying at least $35,000 for it. That's what I got back when I asked for the bills about a month ago. The Daily Item reported yesterday that it was now up to $40,000 for uh, Ballard Spar to send an attorney, uh, Renee Smith, um, down from Philadelphia to to look into this, to depose people and come up with some kind of uh, narrative and finding an assessment of, of what went on here. And so that's that's how this this came to pass. And that investigation, that is really, frankly, a damning investigation of the internal investigation that was done by the Sunbury Police Department. Yeah. The conclusion that uh, Ms. Smith comes to is that, you know, um, there were basic investigative steps missed and her her words were fatally or are fatally flawed unprofessional, biased, uh, that the former chief really mishandled things, basically, despite what his stated intent uh, might have been at the time. And, um, you know, that the city itself, city officials, did not have the proper policies in place that could have maybe made for a better result uh, and more professional handling of situations like this. Let's just come out and say it, Emily. I mean, he, this former chief, is alleged to have erased phone records. Yes. He, so to go back to sort of the blow by blow of how we got to this point, um, the chief, the, the officer, upon realizing that the husband of his former girlfriend was aware of it, The husband went to the wife of this officer, told her, and he. so the officer went to the chief and said, hey, this is coming up again, even though the relationship's over, and I'm concerned about implications for my job and for the department. And the chief kind of sat on it. Then the the woman and her husband filed this complaint um, against the officer, and that basically forced the chief's hand, the former chief's hand, to um, to do an internal investigation. He assigned that duty to a corporal who had never done an IA investigation before, gave her a day to do it. Um, he wiped he wiped the phone of this officer clean before handing it over to the mayor when the mayor asked to see it on three separate or two separate occasions and another occasion um, much later when the Ballard Spar attorney had been brought in. He, he did the same thing. Um, and we can get into that later as to what his stated justification was at the time. Um, but he never, he himself says that he never looked through the phone to see if there was any evidence that, you know, this got, this officer had been engaging in anything while he was on duty, which he wasn't supposed to do. Um, you know, this sounds like, not to bring a sports analogy here, but this is like the Tom Brady Deflategate case. The phone mysteriously disappears. Everyone sends up red flags. Here you have in a police department that's running an internal investigation, the police chief who may face some penalties of his own, the former police chief now, magically decides to delete the whole phone, delete phone records. Right. 
Um, and, you know, he he said the reason he did that was to prevent sensitive police information from getting into the wrong hands, that it, he was abiding by a policy. Um, it's called the Commonwealth Law Enforcement Assistance Network. It's information, police for, um, you know, local jurisdictions, the state police, whatever, federal agencies can have access to criminal histories, other records, um, driving records, things like that. And it does say that devices that have processed that information should be sanitized before handing over, being handed over to, um, you know, to another entity. However, that's the policy for the state police. I don't know what Sunbury's policy is. Okay. The investigating attorney from Ballard Spar doesn't know because when she asked to see the policy, the department wasn't able to produce it just like they weren't able to produce or the city wasn't able to produce a lot of other policies for even more basic things. Um, but, but, you know, one of the things that he could have done, and this is his predecessor mentions this because he's interviewed in the report, um, Officer Mazio, police officer with the city of Sunbury, used to be the chief, he said, and he was the, the one who tipped off the mayor to the fact that these deletions had occurred, um, that he should have put it in an evidence bag and locked it in the evidence room. That's what he should have done with the phone. The investigating attorney said, you know, we've done hundreds of law enforcement investigations and we could have worked with the chief to make sure that whatever it was that was sensitive on the phone was segregated from the information that we were truly interested in, which isn't privileged information or, or sensitive in the same way. Um, I was also told that apparently the information that we're talking about, the information sharing systems were um, in apps on the phone, and so and they were password protected. So those could have been either deleted or, you know, if if there was truly concern, but if they're password protected, how do you know what the password is? So that's, we're really getting into the in the weeds now, yeah. but I feel like it's it's relevant. I mean, if you want to yeah. sort of explain something like this. Yeah, I mean, let's just be clear. Let's take a step back. Sure. We're talking about the phone here that's in, in question that a former chief, the former police chief in Sunbury allegedly erased, or can we say that he actually did erase it? He did. No, he did erase it. Okay, so he actually erased it, but... Now there's a lot of questions about whether this phone that's at the center of this investigation should have been preserved and how it should have been preserved and how that information should have been um, should have been shared with investigators. Let's move on to the report that, that recently came out that you and the Sunbury Daily Item uh, both fought for public release. Why didn't the city release this at first? That was on the advice of their attorneys from Ballard Spar. They said it contained... Um, privileged information, and um, there were parts of it that were private, but that council could authorize it if they wanted to, and council ultimately opted to do that once the public records or the state uh, open records office ordered its release. Um, they could have redacted it. They chose not to do that. They released it in its entirety. Now, you talked with a city councilor about this. Uh, what did he have to say? That they're still investigating, that this um, first internal review led to a lot of questions that weren't answered um, about how things w were handled um, in the department and are handled in the department and why they are done the way they are about the conduct of um, this officer after his first um, disciplinary action and others in the department. And so, you know, obviously... 
he's limited as to what he can say um, on the record, but just that they are still looking into um, things that were that came to the surface based on this investigation. Yeah, let's hear a little bit from that city councilor. Just to clear the air, uh, you know, people were talking in the city about internal corruption and uh, sweeping stuff under the table and stuff like that. So he was talking about the motivation for them to do, um, to hire Ballard Spar to spend the money on this external review. And that's uh, Councilman Richard Reichner. So with all of this being said, and really this is a mess at this point, what kind of penalties could this former police chief face? Well, that is one thing Council, uh, count the councilman also said, Councilman Reichner, that they were going to, they could discipline him. They're not sure. They're still sort of processing all of this. Um, he did ask to be demoted three weeks after this report came back, um, but before it had been released publicly. So he's still working for the department. He didn't say they were going to terminate him, just discipline him. Um, and as far as criminality, you you listen to the, the description of what happened, that he deleted this everything on a phone that was the city-issued device of an officer who was accused of using it to conduct personal business to possibly um, have sex in his squad car, drive his squad car to meet up with um, a woman he, he was seeing, deleted that from the phone. So you wonder, is that tampering with evidence? Does it rise to a criminal um, level? And I talked to the uh, Pennsylvania Chiefs of Police Association about that, and they said that because the, the department didn't have policies in place dictating how you can use city-issued technology, um, that he really couldn't be, that's not potentially criminal on the part of the officer, therefore the, dis the destruction of evidence into the internal investigation of that officer wouldn't be considered criminal. Um, it's basically like the city gave this guy a phone and didn't tell him anything. So they never gave him guidance as to how to use it, so he can't really be considered there's no uh, misuse or theft of public resources that he could potentially be held accountable for. Therefore, there's no criminal penalty at this stage, it appears, that the, the chief, the former chief, would face. So a lack of a policy, basically, ignorance is bliss here. There's sure. no policy, so there's per potentially no crime. So if there's no rules, then you don't have to follow any rules. So this is in Sunbury. Let's zoom out, Emily. Can this happen anywhere? Well, sure. If there aren't proper policies in place, um, then then yeah. And it should be noted that Sunbury is not a large city. There are less than 10,000 people that live there. But I mean, more than 2,000 municipalities in Pennsylvania have a, a smaller population. Um, you know, small department, small population, maybe that's somehow linked here. They don't have as many resources. And it also should be noted that three quarters of local police departments are either um, Sunbury size, which is 11 officers, or smaller than that. So if it's a small city, a small department, not a lot of resources that may be contributing to this lack of um, professionalism, lack of um, policies and procedures, then it, you know, it, it could ha happen in other places, sure. Any idea of, of those kinds of places? I know that you just said three-fourths of the departments 
across Pennsylvania are smaller or the same size as sunberries. Any idea of other places that may lack these kinds of protections, or is that simply too hard to determine with so many departments in Pennsylvania? I would say it is too hard to determine that conclusively. I would add that if um, a police department goes through the, the process with the, the state uh, chiefs of police association and gets accredited, they have over three, 132 standards, including how to deal with internal affairs and technology usage. There are only 300 departments of the, you know, over 1,000 or whatever that have ever been accredited and only 102, and that includes the state police, that currently are. So you can say that those places have policies in place. And as for the rest, you really don't know. So final question here. A lot of times we do hear from people, what can I as a regular citizen do to make sure this doesn't happen in my community? Well, um, you could ask, uh, you could request these policies and compare them to what, um, you know, we're working to what the best practices are. We are working on a story about that. That'll go up probably tomorrow. Um, or you can go right to the source, to the, the Chiefs Association, or review it yourself and see how that sits with you. Um, if there is no policy in place, you might want to take that to your elected officials and ask why, and maybe suggest the accreditation process if you're really concerned that these could become you know, uh, bigger liability issues in the future in your town. Um, it doesn't cost as much as I would have, would have thought. It's like $250 to go through the process and $1,000 a year to maintain that. So... That's Emily Previty. She's with Keystone Crossroads doing some strong reporting on what's going on in Sunbury's police department. Emily, thanks a lot. Thank you, Ben. So we started Smart Talk with a roundup of what's going on at the Capitol, moved on to opioid discussion, and now we end with a conversation about erasing cell phones, a police, former police chief in Sunbury, erasing cell phones. One note, this conversation about opioids... It was part of our Transforming Health Project. You can visit WITF's Transforming Health Project online at transforminghealth.org. It's a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. I want to thank our guest today, Mark Levy of the Associated Press, Dr. Chris Echterling, a medical director with Wellspan, Dr. Robert Rodak, president of the Pennsylvania Academy of Family Physicians, and Emily Previty, Keystone Crossroads reporter. Now, a special note here. Next Tuesday, it's a Smart Talk road trip. You can join us at the Lancaster train station as Scott Lamar will do Smart Talk live from the station at 9 a.m. This is going to be a transportation-focused Smart Talk. So if you have questions or comments about transportation in central Pennsylvania, we want you to go ahead and email us, smarttalk at WITF.org. We hope we can answer some of those questions. Or if you want to come out and actually see Smart Talk produced live, again, the Lancaster train station next Tuesday, Scott Lamar doing Smart Talk live from the station at 9 a.m. Should be quite an experience. Looking forward to all of that.